Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Good evening, everyone. I'm John Berman, and this is CNN Tonight. And our headline... Several classified documents from President Joe Biden's time as vice president discovered in a private office he periodically used in Washington. The source tells CNN that fewer than a dozen documents were found, found, by the way, by Biden's own people. His lawyers say they found them, including some with the sensitive compartmented information designation. They found them on November 2nd. They say the White House Counsel's Office notified the National Archives immediately and the archives took possession of them the next morning. The president ignored shouted questions in Mexico from reporters tonight. Now, there are questions tonight about how the documents got there, who knew they were there, what exactly they contained. The U.S. attorney in Chicago, who, by the way, is a Trump appointee, is conducting a damage assessment. But there are important distinctions between this and the swirl of controversy around Donald Trump and the documents at Mar-a-Lago. Biden's lawyers say they immediately turned over the documents and cooperated with the DOJ as soon as they found them. It took several asks and subpoenas to get the documents that Trump had, not to mention the search warrant. In that case, there was also an investigation of possible obstruction. The documents found in Biden's office numbered fewer than a dozen. The documents found at Mar-a-Lago number in the hundreds. There's also the legal side and, of course, the political. Everybody who watched the chaos in Congress this past week knows there is a new Republican majority in the House with the gavel, with new committee chairs, and they are hungry for investigations. And this could be at the top of their list now. All of this is against the backdrop of Joe Biden, CNN is reporting, getting ready to run again. I want to bring in CNN's Evan Perez and Sarah Murray. Evan, you have the reporting on these documents. Just lay it out for us. What do we know? Well, John, uh, we know now uh, from the White House that these documents were found in November during a search uh, or a, a process that the, 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 the president's legal team was doing uh, to shut down an office that he had set up when he left office back in 2017, when he left uh, office as vice president. Uh, he, was, he had set up a think tank with the University of Pennsylvania. And it's during that process, last November, that they uncovered these government records that needed to be turned over, should have been turned over to the National Archives. Now, among those documents, as you pointed out, were what the, the Trump's, uh, what is uh, President Biden's team says, were fewer, fewer than a dozen documents that were marked at, at cl- as classified. Uh, a source is telling uh, F- uh, Phil Mattingly that at least some of these documents uh, were, uh, le- were at the TSSCI level, which stands for Sensitive Compartmented Information, some of the most closely guarded secrets in the U.S. government, uh, and that the, former pre- the president didn't know 
and still doesn't know what exactly were in those documents, John. So uh, at this stage, uh, we know that the Justice Department is doing uh, a review, an investigation of this, being handled by the U.S. attorney in Chicago, John Lausch. And we'll see whether that's where this remains. Uh, At this point, that's all we know. The U.S. attorney in Chicago, who, by the way, is a bit of a quirk here, is still a Trump appointee, one of the very few U.S. attorneys who is a Trump appointee. Evan, people will look at this and say, classified documents in possession of a president or a former president. What are the differences here well, between big, the Biden case and the Trump case? Right. There were, were some big distinctions. According to uh, President Biden's team, uh, we're talking about, uh, about fewer than a dozen, according to them. Uh, we know from the, the, the court fights that we've been watching uh, with regard to the documents that were turned over from the former president, Trump, Uh, that we're talking over 300 documents uh, of various classifications, 92 at least, which were at secret, uh, and, uh, you know, a couple of dozen that were at the highest classifications. And as you pointed out, John, uh, it took months and months of arguing and and letters and threats from the Justice Department, the FBI, and the archives to try to get Trump to turn over some of those documents. And in the end, he still didn't turn over all of them because when the FBI went in in August August to do a search, they found additional documents. And we should point out that the Justice Department says in court filings that the reason why they conducted that extraordinary search that we saw in Mar-a-Lago in August was because they had received information that documents were being moved out of that location. So we know that that is the reason why uh, the former president is now the subject of an investigation that includes obstruction. According to President Biden's team, they turned over these documents without being asked. They turned them over immediately. Uh, and so that's where the distinction lies. All right, Evan, stand by for a minute. I want to bring in Sarah Murray here. Sarah, what has the reaction been from Capitol Hill? Well, I mean, look, for Republicans, this is essentially a political gift. They were awfully amused uh, as we were talking to them about this story tonight. You know, Kevin McCarthy, the new speaker, sort of seemed skeptical that all of a sudden these documents have emerged and sort of seemed to suggest that Biden should have known better. He said President Trump had been in office before and had just left, came out. And then here's an individual. He's talking about Biden now spent his last 40 years in office. It just shows that they were trying to be political with President Trump. I also talked to James Comer about this. He's the new oversight chair. They're planning on sending documents to the archives as well as to the Biden White House about this matter. He said, how ironic that Biden now finds himself in this position. Uh, We also heard from Jim Jordan, who's chair of the Judiciary Committee. He said, you know, we'll see whether this becomes an area of investigation. The Democrats, as you might imagine, were more muted. Uh, Some of them talked to my colleague, Manu Raju, Jim Himes, Adam Schiff, top Democrats on House Intel, both said, you know, these classified documents do need to be kept in a secure space. Uh, obviously, that it was not the uh, the former, sorry, Joe Biden, current president's office when he had left office as vice president. And we also heard from Jamie Raskin. Now, he was more defensive. He said that attorneys for President Biden appear to have taken immediate and proper action to notify the National Archives. So he was someone who I think was more defensive of the president. So what did some of these same people, particularly Republicans, say about Donald Trump and the Marl Lago documents when that whole issue emerged? Well, I think sort of the key sentiment we heard from Republicans at the time was not to focus 
Don't look at all these classified documents that may have been squirreled away at Mar-a-Lago. Don't worry about that. This is about the search at Mar-a-Lago and how the government has overstepped. That is really what a number of Republicans focus on. And frankly, that's what they're continuing to focus on as we go into this new Congress. As you point out, they got the gavels. They have an opportunity now to investigate the Biden administration. And this now becomes part of it for them. And Evan Perez, one more question to you here. What about the timing of this? If, if Biden's lawyers discovered them on November 2nd. That was before the midterm election. Why are we only hearing about this now? Right, exactly. That's, uh, that's a question we certainly have. We don't know why uh, this uh, take, took so long to come out. We certainly know that what uh, the National Archives did after reviewing the situation is they decided to make a referral to the Justice Department for them to do, uh, you know, similar to what they handled the, the Mar-a-Lago situation. Um, the, the, the question now, though, is, you know, what happens next, right? Uh, after this review, uh, after this investigation that's being done by the FBI, uh, do they ask for more information? Do they have to do interviews to see who handled these documents, John? Remember, these documents have been sitting there apparently in a closet at this office for, I guess, six years, right? And so that's a long time for documents uh, to be sitting there in a place that is not secure, and that's been part of the issue of the, mm-hmm. of the investigation into the former president, which is, you know, the handling of classified information is a big, big issue, and, of course, something that, that President Biden has made a point of, point, uh, of, of a distinction of pointing out with regard to Trump. M. Perez, Sarah Murray, thanks to both of you for your reporting on this. I want to bring in former Nixon White House counsel John Dean and David Gergen, CNN senior political analyst. John, just first to you, this is now to a certain extent in the hands of a U.S. attorney out of Chicago. What questions need to be answered here from a legal standpoint? Well, obviously, all the facts surrounding the discovery of these documents at the think tank that uh, Biden was associated with have to be developed. That's going to be either be done informally by or uh, I don't think it'll go to a grand jury. I think the FBI will investigate it. They'll ask all the people the right questions and get some information. If it is serious, if it's just not a civil wrong and a irresponsible act by the former vice president and current president, uh, then it will be a grand jury. Otherwise, it will just really be uh, dealt with in some sort of report that the attorney general, because of the politics of it all, is going to have to decide whether to release it or not. Because from a legal standpoint, what matters is, is how the documents ended up there and who knew that they were there? Well, you know, it's very unusual for this level of classification to be outside of a SCIF or a a proper filing system. I don't know if this think tank has that. That's part of the facts we don't have. Uh, If if it was a mistaken uh, delivery by some staffer who left them there, the vice president has no exposure at all. He claims he doesn't even know what the documents are today. So, uh, you know, I, I, I think what will happen here, because the Republicans are so good at making mountains out of molehills, that they will make a mountain out of this. And so it's not going to go away. While it, politically it is a gift to them, legally it's not going to change Trump's situation at all. Not change Trump's situation at all. David no. Gergen... Uh, to you here in terms of how the current White House has handled this, according to them. They told the National Archives as soon as they knew where they were there. What's your assessment here? Well, they didn't go public with it. And if this this whole tri- uh, 
effort is going to be tried first in the court of public opinion of what happens in the next two, three, four weeks as investigations go on, as they would get more facts. But clearly, they should have, the White House should have disclosed this when they first found out. They did the right thing by turning it over to the Justice Department, but they would have saved themselves a lot of grief politically had they, had they served it up to the public right away. I imagine they were, they were very worried about the midterms, which are just around the corner. They had some momentum, and this blunts it. I think in the long term, this, the you know the Democrats will come out. I think this is going to be a certainly one of these polarizing issues. One side has a group of arguments in its favor. The other side has a group of arguments, and you know never the twain shall meet. And we just go on. We're polarized by further polarized. I don't see this as settling the polarization issue at all. You know, one of the issues, David, and again, you 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 worked in many different White Houses here. <laughs> How easy is it to walk away? with classified documents. Again, there's the issue of the possession of them, merely having the classified documents. Then there's the issue, and this is where you get into the Trump world, of having them, being told you shouldn't have them, being asked to get them back and not turning them over. So the act of having them, how unusual or how many questions does that raise in and of itself? Well, the, 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 uh, you mean the act of asking everybody, can you get me this and get me that? Well, no, just the fact that Biden, you know, that they existed in the closet if they ended up because well, someone I, packed them there and they moved there. Sure. I, I think it's unbelievable that this stuff has been sitting in a closet for six years. I mean, I, this is sort of stunning uh, in and of itself. And that's the question I have is how many were there some other closets around? Well, why in the world was the vice president keeping classified documents anyway? Uh, why did he on a site which is probably un, unprotected? So there is a lot about that that I think he's going to get scalded for um, in, in the weeks ahead. But I do think that John Dean is right. The Republicans have become awfully experienced and pretty darn good at making mountains out of molehills. So, John Dean, put yourself in Merrick Garland's position now, the attorney general of the United States. You just told me that you don't think this changes Donald Trump's legal situation. But but does Trump and his team now have a, a defense in a court where a jury would have to you know, decide beyond a reasonable doubt that Donald Trump is guilty. Does Trump now have a defense that is something along the lines of, well, hey, other guys took documents too? I don't think so. It will hold up. What Trump's problem is, he obstructed the process of getting the documents back. Had he returned the documents when the National Archives requested them, this would have never developed into an issue. It's because he stalled them, refused, then stiffed them on a subpoena, Uh, and obstructed and misrepresented what was there. Uh, That's why he's in trouble. It's not the fact that he had the documents, uh, even if he took them for some sinister or improper reason. Uh, He probably could have gotten uh, away and just returned them, uh, but his refusal to return them is what the issue became. And that's what uh, the general has to look at when the special counsel refers the case to him if he decides it's prosecutable. Well, that's what I was getting at with my questions about whether possession in and of itself is enough to necessarily be nefarious. It gets to also the legal question, John, of do you think the attorney general would support a prosecution based on obstruction alone, not necessarily the possession? Well, I, it is, it's a question of the, the intent. You know, what was the intent that uh, each of them obtain these documents. I think it happens much more than we know that former high officials end up with classified documents in their files. Uh, we know a former CIA director had them. We, you know, former military people get them. And 
they're generally just returned and no issue is made of it. It's because of the way Trump behaved once he did, it was discovered that he did have these documents that raised the criminal issues with him. So these are very different criminal cases versus civil. Mm -hmm. There's no evidence at this point that that Mr. Biden has done anything uh, that's criminal. He certainly made an abuse of the uh, norms for handling classified documents by taking them as a former vice president to his think tank. Uh, we don't know how he got them there, though. All right, David, I got to let you yeah. run in just a second here. But David Gergen, just quickly to you, Joe Biden, the president, didn't answer questions about this tonight. How long do you think that can go on? Do you think he addresses this tomorrow? Yes, he's got to address it tomorrow. He needs to do it immediately. Uh, it, the more quickly he acts, the more he sort of cleans it, cleans all of the closets out and discloses what's there, he, he can get this under control. But at this point, if you're the prosecuting attorney and thinking about having a court case against Donald Trump, you know, you had a lot of the sting about uh, documents being in the wrong hands. That, that, is good. that sting is going to evaporate. You know, how, how, making those arguments now in front of the country about how serious this is from a Democratic point of view is just really, really very difficult to argue. All right, David Gergen, John Dean, our thanks to both of you. So last week, everyone was watching. It was something of a nightmare for Republicans in the House of Representatives. So what's the impact now of this news about Joe Biden? What will Republicans in the House do with it? And what does it mean for President Biden, who, by all accounts, is now firming up support, gearing up for a run for re-election? All right, there is now a Speaker of the House. Republican Kevin McCarthy is the Speaker. They've moved past that, although not without some scars. And now that Republicans are running things in the House, they are no doubt going to face this issue that is percolating over the last few hours with these documents that were found at an office that Joe Biden used that were marked classified. Here with me, CNN political commentator Alyssa Farrah Griffin, CNN political analyst Ed Herndon, and senior political analyst John Avalon. I want to go quickly over what we were just talking about with these documents found in Joe Biden's former office here, John. What are the most important issues that you see, the real issues that you see here? Well, the, the real issue on the political side is Demo Republicans are going to be able to play the whataboutism game and say, see, Joe Biden did it too. Uh, any charges against Donald Trump are going to be purely political. Look, we often let politics play the ref around legal decisions. The obvious thing is apply the same standards no matter what political party is involved. But you also got to have perspective. And you did a great job at the top of the show putting this in perspective. There's a difference between less than a dozen documents and 300. There's a difference between handing them immediately over to NARA and obstructing uh, requests for the documents over a long period of time. And then there's the question of just what's in the documents. Is it something nefarious that had personal benefit to Joe Biden and or his family? Or is it totally innocuous? Those facts matter. And the rush to play the whataboutism game falling into that I think does a disservice to the facts of the case. You've got to follow the facts without fear or favor. You know, Alyssa, it is interesting. And, and, and no doubt, Republicans will ask about this. And I don't think there's anything necessarily even controversial about an oversight committee of either party asking for more mm -hmm. information about something like this. But if anyone does go then and say what Joe Biden did 
is wrong, don't they also then have to say that what Donald Trump is wrong? And then don't they tie themselves in some sort of reverse backflip knot there? That's where it gets complicated. But I do want to say full stop. It is wrong when anyone, president, vice president, average citizen, mishandles classified information. I've been consistent when it was Hillary Clinton, when it was Donald Trump, and in this case, the the president. Here's the problem that I think Republicans are going to encounter in trying to litigate this in the court of public opinion is Mm. many were silent on Donald Trump mishandling classified information. However, their counterpoint is going to be no one raided the vice president's former, you know, school that he had a facility. I'm already seeing that percolate. It's going to descend into the political corners of each side. I agree very much with David Gergen. The sooner the president gets out and says, we tried to be above board, we came forward, we turned these over, the better for him. But I'm not a lawyer. I'm a political advisor. This makes Merrick Garland's case a lot harder as I see it. How comfortable is Merrick Garland tonight, I said? I mean, <laughs> Merrick Garland has kind of made his name on this out of ignoring the politics. So you would, you would hope that in this moment he would kind of stay on the course, as he has said. But that's going to be harder and harder, to your point, as more people are looking to make that uh, uh, equivalence between Trump's action and Biden's actions. Now, we know that there's a factual false equivalence. We should not make those two things the same. But the politics yeah. of that allows the Republican Party to be able to say, uh, uh, maybe that it's not just as bad as what Donald Trump did, but just at minimum to muddy the waters around the classified documents. They're going to play that card. They needed no encouragement to play that card before today, but that that has been supercharged for them after today. I do have questions about the timeline here, about when this was discovered, who knew what, when. Mm -hmm. In terms of Merrick Garland announced the appointment of the special counsel after, I think, he knew about these documents in Joe Biden's office. Yeah. I, I That's not uninteresting. That, that is not uninteresting. And I do think there are real questions around this. I mean, when when was that when did that knowledge happen? Mm-hmm. And then also, uh, why didn't they announce it before or when that when that acquisition was made is something that we're gonna get real answers to. I think to your point, it will it does make sense to have a kind of investigative questions to be asked, but the politics is where yeah. this is gonna live and die. And that is going to be for a Republican Party that has an incentive to absolve Donald Trump. Th- that's right. And, and I, the only thing I'd add is that is that Joe Biden, President Biden has an obligation to come forward yeah. tomorrow and answer questions as fully and fulsomely as he possibly can. It may be he's going to say, I didn't know they were there. It may very you, well you be. You would think, based yeah. on the audio we've heard of him just vociferously yeah. condemning Donald Trump for, you know, how it was yeah. irresponsible to have these documents. I, I suspect he probably didn't know, but can I just, taking a step back, why do so many of our senior most leaders not know how to handle classified information? If When I was at the Department of Defense, if I had taken one TS document out, I would have been prosecuted yeah. and thrown into prison. Yeah, d- there's a different set, I think, of expectations or at least understanding for the most senior and then the rank and file here. I do want to talk about something else that's happening in the House of Representatives. George Santos, the member of Congress from the state of New York here who said a whole lot of things that weren't true about himself is now a sitting member of the House of Representatives. That part is true. That part is all true. Everything I just said there is true. Kevin McCarthy, who is now the Speaker of the House, has been asked, what are you going to do about this guy who lied about himself who's now in your caucus? Kevin McCarthy had refused to comment on it Uh, until now. But now he told CNN tonight, just a short time ago, you know how I handle internal stuff? I handle it internally. I'm sure at times I'll come tell you. So this guy who ran on a bunch of lies and is now being investigated, that's an internal issue? Uh, in, 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 In Kevin McCarthy's reality distortion field of the moment, yes. And look, you can understand someone saying, look, this is an issue with one of my members. I've got a pretty narrow majority. I'm going to handle it behind closed doors. Um, But there's investigations occurring that are quite public. And this guy lied about everything. And this ain't going away. 
even if the speaker might like to contain it behind closed doors. Well, it's also rich because the leader of my party, Kevin McCarthy, also decided to hash out a public debate through 50, 15 speaker votes <laughs> instead of working it out behind closed doors, his issues with his members. So I, it's a little bit of inconsistency there. I'll be curious to see if he seats him on committees. Um, committee assignments are coming down. Where do you put somebody who's under SEC investigation is, and elsewhere? This is a Speaker of the House in, in name. Oh, I mean, we, we do not have a political capital shown to so that he actually he is, is Speaker well, of the House. I, I understand that that is true. I am not saying that. I am just saying from who has the power in that caucus, that has been made clear over the last couple of days. And I think we should not expect a Kevin McCarthy to behave in the same ways that that Speaker has been the traditional leader of the caucus since then. He is in uncharted water. But can I just say, uh, in the case of George Santos, just this alone. Who, who's the George Santos caucus? Who's like rooting <laughs> for this guy? Why would any Republican? Yeah. I, I know that there's a very, very thin yeah. margin, but it's just one vote. Maybe you can spare the one vote not to have well, the guy who lied. I mean, no, the, the answer is uh, if, if he were in a district they thought they could win a special yeah. election in, he'd be gone. That's yeah. exactly it. Um, yeah. But that is not the case. Yeah. And so they're going to try to live with it as long as it they possibly It was a surprise can. victory that he won that district. I, I'm a, the Democratic candidate should have run a better campaign and should have done more vetting. They can't afford it. Kevin McCarthy has such a slim majority. He's going to hold on to this guy until he has somebody better. Actually, absolutely. Yeah. Actually, part of the problem was, I mean, New York Times, Newsday, this was considered a safe seat. And You're so there blaming him? You're blaming him? <laughs> <saying? laughs> Newsday shouldn't particularly should have stepped up. They, 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 own, they own the island. But but the, the real problem is it was considered a safe seat, and so there wasn't the, mm-hmm. the, the adequate yeah. attention. And so, you know, you, you get a guy who lied about everything sitting in Congress. And actually, there was sorry. a brief moment on the House floor where his name was called repeatedly, and people started joking maybe his name isn't even George Santos. So we don't know what might yeah. come out about this character. Okay, all right, so they're renting the seat. They're renting the seat at the cost of a lot yes. of lives there. Thank you all so much for being here tonight. I appreciate it. So a political riot in Brazil has a lot of people saying, you know, this looks familiar. The parallels between what's happening there and what happened here on January 6th after this. An historic scene in Brazil over the weekend that is both frightening and familiar as supporters of Brazil's former president, Jair Bolsonaro, stormed the country's seats of power. You look at this and you immediately think of what happened in this country two years and two days before. We're putting the Brazilian riot and the January 6th riot at the U.S. Capitol side by side here. The Brazilian rioters or insurrectionists appear as if they're trying to overturn the election of Lula da Silva, who was sworn in last week. Take a look at some of the video. And really, there are similarities. Again, U.S. on the left, Brazil on the right. Um, you were seeing there in, in the heart of two democracies here. Again, you're looking at these two pictures here and you can see they're very similar. Now, for the record, Bolsonaro did not stick around for his, uh, the inauguration of his successor. He left for the U.S. two days before Trump, Donald Trump, was the first outgoing U.S. president since the 19th century not to go to the inauguration of the next president. This is how the two leaders, Bolsonaro and Trump, discussed their election results. In a terse two-minute statement, he said he would respect the Constitution, but he neither admitted defeat nor recognized the results of the election. Frankly, we did win this election. 
Now, Bolsonaro happens to be in Florida right now. In Florida, Bolsonaro is where Donald Trump has been since he lost his election. Bolsonaro did condemn the riots in his country. We should say that. Brazil's justice minister says there have already been some 1,500 arrests since the rioting. In the U.S., more than 950 people have been charged in the attack on the U.S. Capitol. So you're looking at, of course, the chaos in Brazil. What may be happening around the world following, of course, what happened here in the United States. Also here in the U.S., what do we know about how Republicans will now handle their power in the House of Representatives? And, of course, the questions over the new reports tonight about classified documents being found in an office used by Joe Biden after he was vice president. My next guest, we're going to ask him about all of it. Former Defense Secretary William Cohen is here. That's next. So we're back following a number of big stories. Violence that is being compared to what we saw here on January 6th. Brazil, it's happening there. It is reeling after hundreds of supporters of the former president there stormed the seat of government after he refused to concede his election loss. That's going on here in the United States. The Republicans, they have the gavel in the House of Representatives. They have a speaker. What will they do with this power? And tonight we are learning that classified documents from Joe Biden's time as vice president were discovered in a private office that he used after the Obama administration. With me now is former Defense Secretary William Cohen. Mr. Secretary, thank you so much for being with us. I want to start with what we're seeing or saw in Brazil over the weekend. My colleague Jim Shudo asked the question, is election, de- election denialism now a chief U.S. export? What do you think about that? Well, I think uh, it has been exported. I think Bolsonaro uh, was looking at uh, President Trump as an example uh, to follow. Uh, it may be that uh, he sees it as an alter ego, but the fact is that what he and Trump both have done is to undercut the legitimacy of our institutions and especially the right to vote. So I think when you delegitimize the vote saying, unless I win, uh, it's fraudulent, then what you're doing is you're undercutting the very premise and the basics of having a democracy. So, yeah, I think that uh, President Trump, he's not the originator of this tactic. It's a tactic of um, totalitarians, uh, authoritarians, those who are seeking to destroy institutions and then come in on a white horse and say, a white man coming on a white horse and say, we're here to rescue you. Does it undercut U.S. diplomacy worldwide when the U.S. pushes the virtues of democracy? Oh, I think it does. I think any time you see action being taken in the United States uh, that uh, in any way undermines the rule of law, and I believe we've seen that take place on the part of the Republicans for the last uh, two years at least, denying the election was legitimate, notwithstanding all the court cases who reaffirm the legitimacy of the election, they still say we can't support it. So I think uh, that we are sending that signal to other countries. This is how you do it if you want to overthrow the democratic um, constitution. One of the you know 26 super impressive jobs you've held in your life is as a member of the U.S. House of Representatives, a Republican member from Maine. How would you like to be serving in the Republican caucus right now? Um, What are you expecting from them over the next two years? Well, I wouldn't like to be serving, nor would they like to have me serving, because I've always believed that we need to agree on the facts. And I think that many on the Hill right now 
are living in an alternate universe, naming alternative facts. So I think when you deny factual information, then you are, I think it was uh, Timothy Snyder, the, uh, uh, the professor from Yale, who said that a post-truth era is a precursor uh, to pre-fascism. So post-truth, pre-fascism. And I think that's what we're looking at if we don't restore respect for the rule of law. And I don't know that the Republicans have that in mind. I think they're more inclined to see if they can't denigrate uh, President Biden, his son, and do everything they can to uh, prepare for 2024. I do want to ask you about the news reported tonight by CBS and then CNN about documents found in Joe Biden's private office, an office he used after he was vice president, between when he was vice president and then elected president, documents marked classified there. What questions do you have? What do you think are the legitimate questions about the presence of those documents? Obviously, intent is the most legitimate uh, in terms of whether President Biden uh, knew he had the documents and uh, whether he uh, any, in any way withheld them once he knew about it. But, you know, the politics are going to override uh, any attempt to be reasonable about this. I think it was Harold Macmillan during a time when there was a scandal in Great Britain. He said um, words to the effect, it may be a tempest in a teacup, but in politics, we sail in paper boats. And I think that's where we are right now in terms of how the paper boats that we're in, I think the water will overwhelm it, uh, however serious it turns out to be in terms of what Joe Biden had in mind or didn't have in mind. I think the politics will outweigh the, uh, the facts. Mr. Secretary William Cohen, always a pleasure to speak to you. Thank you so much. Great to be with you, John. Thank you. So one week and two hours since DeMar Hamlin collapsed on the field during Monday night football. It's been that long, but... We've got a wonderful update for you. We'll tell you how he's doing now. That's next. The Buffalo Bills' DeMar Hamlin is back in Buffalo tonight at a local hospital just one week after collapsing on the field with cardiac arrest during a game against the Cincinnati Bengals. Doctors say his recovery continues to beat expectations. Hamlet tweeted out his appreciation for those rallying around him, writing in part, quote, the same love you all have shown me is the same love that I plan to put back into the world and more. He tweeted a photo of himself yesterday from his hospital bed, rooting on his teammates in their win, their big win over the New England Patriots. Doctors say Hamlin maybe got a little too excited watching the game. You watched the game on uh, yesterday? Um, when the uh, opening kickoff was run back, he jumped up and down, got out of his, uh, his uh, chair, um, set, I think, every alarm off in the ICU in the process. Um, but he was fine. It was just an appropriate reaction to a very exciting play. I was swearing at the TV, also an appropriate reaction. With me now, CNN contributor Kerry Champion and former NFL pair Ephraim Salam. Ephraim, I just have to say, first of all, it was one week ago that you and I were talking before we had any idea that DeMar Hamlin was on the road to recovery here. I just want you to reflect on the difference in emotions between this moment and one week ago. Yeah, it it has a lot to do with, um, you know, the grace of God. When when you look at what we witnessed Monday night seven days ago and to see where he is now and how he's been able to uh, cheer on his team I think the only reason the, the guys were able to actually go and play that game was because he was on the not play. I think that your friend, that your teammate is, is, hey, it's hard to do. 
And I think that's why uh, the NFL, the coaches, the players decided not to continue that game Monday. But you felt his spirit going on in that Buffalo game with those both of those kickoff returns, especially the first one. I mean, I I try to be tough, and and, and I'm an offensive lineman, uh, but I, I cried. I, I really shed a tear when I when I had I I saw that uh, Sunday the opening kickoff. It, it really touched me. Look, I wanted nothing more than the Bills to lose that game as a Patriots fan. And even <laughs> I, even I was shaking my head in appreciation uh, when they ran back the first. The second one I thought that was gratuitous. Um, Carrie, I do have to ask, Carrie Champion, I can't remember a time when it's felt like we've seen so much controversy in sports over the last few years. When so many people have come together, there really has been this joining of spirit the last week, capped off, by the way, that by that supernatural kickoff return against the Patriots. Yeah, I think, you know, we all felt it. Here's the beauty. Uh, you know, I have such a love-hate relationship with social media, as I'm sure most of us do. But what happened for us on Monday was in real time, we as a community, we could discuss what we were seeing. And our hearts went out to a 24-year-old, for lack of a better term, kid who hadn't experienced life and that just seemed so unfair. So when we knew football was over that night, all, you know, all said and done, the right decision, the progress that he has been able to make within a week has been our progress. He belonged to us collectively. We all wanted to watch our friend, now our friend, DeMar do well, because he reminded us of someone we cared about or simply because we wanted to see something better. And for the doctors to talk about his experience and how he feels at this moment and how he set off all the alarms. And for you to at the same time say, albeit you are the biggest Patriots fan and we know this, you still were rooting for this young man because he won at the game of life, as the doctors have said. And you can't help but to wish him well. What I saw, and to me the most, I thought, significant issue there, John, was that his his charity, Chasing M's, he only wanted $2,500 for the toy drive. And it's, you know, upwards of $6 million, maybe seven at the moment. And a bulk, a bulk of the proceeds came from people, donations came from people who were donating $30 and $40. And in this economy and in this world that we live in, we forget that $30 is a lot of money to someone. And if everyone was doing that in small increments, he had the entire, I mean, for lack of a, I mean, I'm extreme here, but he had the world watching. And we just wanted to say we're rooting for you and we want you to do well. To me, that spoke volumes about what we are as a group of people in our community. I love the way you just put that. I got chills listening to you explain <laughs> what we've all been feeling for the last weeks. I think that really does sum it up. Ephraim, there are questions now. People are now asking the question. It's an obvious one. Well, what happens next for him? Will he play again? <laughs> Is that even an important question to be asking right now? No, that's not an important question, um, and and we don't know that. That's not the the that shouldn't be the focus. The focus should be on his health. Focus should be on uh, being with his family, getting as healthy as he can. Um, what we what what happened to to all of us, the whole country who watched, and in other countries who saw this, and and Eddie, this is this. We get so divisive, especially when we're in a political uh, cycle where, you know, you're far right, far left, Republican, Democrat. What we witnessed, uh, especially with the giving to his foundation, is humanity. This is what it's supposed to be about. And nothing like sports brings people together from all walks of life, genders, 
uh, ethnicities. And that's what that's the, the biggest thing that I took away from everything that's transpired this week is, you know, humanity will win out over politics, over gender, over religion, over anything. And, and I'm just I'm, I'm happy to see that part of this country, especially show that that side of humanity that 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 made this a great country. Look, I hope DeMar Hamlin gets whatever he wants, but I hope he appreciates that, as Kerry said, he has already won at the game of life. Uh, Our thanks to both of you for coming on. Great to see you both. So classified documents from Joe Biden's time as vice president found in his private offices. Now the Justice Department is investigating. We have much more information on this. Stay with us. Our top story tonight, classified documents from Joe Biden's time as vice president found at one of his private offices in Washington, D.C. that he used after he was vice president and before he became president of the United States. A source tells CNN that fewer than a dozen documents were found by Biden's own attorneys a couple months ago. They turned them over to the National Archives, which referred to the matter to the Justice Department. And now Attorney General Merrick Garland is asking a Trump-appointed U.S. attorney to investigate. That was the broad outline of the story. I want to bring in CNN senior White House correspondent MJ Lee. She's traveling with the president in Mexico City and senior justice correspondent Evan Perez. Evan, let's get more details on this story, what you're hearing from your sources tonight. Well, John, uh, what we know is that these documents, uh, we, we don't know what's in the documents, but we know that they were uh, classified at the level of TSSCI, which is uh, sensitive compartment and information. This is among the most closely guarded uh, U.S. government secrets, and that's the reason why this is now being reviewed by uh, prosecutors at the Justice Department, by the U.S. attorney in Chicago, John Lausch, and the FBI, which handles these matters. They do a, a damage assessment to see whether in the six years that these documents were being held in a, a location that is not secure, whether there is any damage that's been done to national security. Of course, uh, this uh, the, the White House says that the uh, White House is cooperating with this review that is being done by the by the National Archives and the Justice Department. And they say this is obviously something that even the former president, even the president, uh, was not aware of uh, until these documents were found by his legal team as they were trying to shut down this, uh, this think tank office that he had set up after he had left office in 2017. Look, the fact that the documents were there, it is news. It is notable. It is also, at least insofar as we know the details of the story so far, somewhat different contextually than the case of the documents at Mar-a-Lago, the documents that were subpoenaed for, what, twice, and then there was a search warrant for them. Talk to us exactly about how these cases differ insofar as we know at this point. Right. There are some major distinctions. And let's start with the number of documents. According to the White House, uh, we're talking, uh, the the Biden documents, we're talking about uh, fewer than a dozen documents. Uh, In the case of former President Trump, uh, right now, the FBI and the Justice Department says that they found at least 300 documents uh, that were recovered from Mar-a-Lago. Uh, in the case of, of Joe Biden's uh, legal team, they say that they found these documents and immediately turned them over to the National Archives, 
Of course, we know, John, that it took months of wrangling between the archives and the FBI and the Justice Department to try to get Trump to turn over the government documents that he had kept. And of course, even after they said that they had turned over everything, uh, we know that the FBI says that they obtained information indicating that documents were being moved from a, from a room that they were supposed to be kept. And that's prompted the, the extraordinary circumstance that you saw that, that, that raid, that, uh, the search that happened at Mar-a-Lago back in August. And of course, that prompted, of course, a obstruction of justice investigation, which is still ongoing. It's being handled by a special counsel. Uh, there's no indication that this is, uh, in the case of the Biden uh, documents, there's no indication that there is anything beyond this review, this investigation that's being done by the FBI and the U.S. attorney there in Chicago, John. MJ Lee, our senior White House correspondent in Mexico City with President Biden. First of all, it's great to see you, MJ. What is the administration saying so far about all this? Well, John, here in Mexico City, the news of these classified documents ended up coinciding with President Biden's bilateral meeting with his Mexican counterpart just right behind me at the National Palace. And earlier this evening, we saw the president basically not at all engage reporters in the room who tried to ask him about these developments. Take a look. Any comment on the documents, sir? And, you know, a senior official who is traveling here with the president uh, told me earlier this evening that he is staying focused on the summit, that none of this affects his trip, and that as far as this official is concerned, this is not an issue that has even come up between the president and his advisors while he has been here. But, of course, the reality is that uh, this is an issue that is going to be waiting for the president as soon as he returns home. Uh, that is tomorrow. And I think it's important to note, you know, if you look at the statement that we got from the special counsel's office sort of laying out what they know and sort of the timeline, they were clear to point out that, one, uh, they immediately informed the National Archives as soon as the documents were found, and two, that they are essentially fully cooperating both with the archives and the DOJ. Uh, all of this, of course, sort of is trying to serve the purpose of the White House trying to show uh, that there's no sort of effort to interfere with anything that the DOJ might be doing. And MJ, as you noted, President Biden just wrapped up a meeting with the Mexican president. This is his first, as follows, by the way, his first visit to the border as president. This is a big trip. What's he hoping to accomplish? Yeah, really significant trip, particularly if you remember the fact that this is the first time that a U.S. president uh, is visiting Mexico since 2014. That, of course, would have been President uh, Obama. There was so much tension uh, in U.S.-Mexico relations, of course, during the Trump years, as you remember. Uh, but there also has been plenty of moments of, of friction uh, under President Biden's watch as well. And we know that immigration has been probably the biggest issue looming over this visit. And I think this visit uh, clearly came at a moment when it was clear that President Biden really is uh, wanting to depend on and lean on and lean on cooperation, really, from partners like Mexico as he tries to deal with this issue of the record number of migrants trying to come into the U.S. Uh, across the U.S. border. This announcement from the administration last week on essentially expanding Title 42, uh, that included an important agreement from the Mexico side. So uh, we obviously know that this was a, top, a topic of discussion tonight when the two leaders met. 
said. And it's also going to continue when uh, there are meetings uh, happening uh, involving the Canadian prime minister as well. So uh, immigration is a top issue, but also just more broadly speaking, uh, issues of trade and other areas of economic cooperation as well, John. And no doubt the president will face a lot of questions on all this and the documents tomorrow during these meetings. MJ Lee in Mexico City, Evan Perez in Washington. Thanks to both of you. Thanks. Joining me now, CNN political commentator Essie Cup, senior legal analyst Ellie Honing, and Lauren Leader. She is co-founder and CEO of All In Together. I want to start with the documents, Ellie. And again, the investigation will determine how they got there, who put them there, who knew they were there, whether Joe Biden knew they were there or not. And, and that may determine whether this is, is, is nothing at all or something that, that is worth further investigating. But, and, but, for Merrick Garland, how does this change his life? The big winner here is Donald Trump. Let's just be clear. It's a windfall for Donald Trump yet again. But here's why. If we were to take all of the relevant factors that a prosecutor would be looking at and just list them in a checklist, number of documents, level of classification, were they cooperative? Did they obstruct? Some of those would be bad for Joe Biden based on what we know. Some would be neutral. More of them would be worse for Donald Trump, I think it's safe to say, based on what we know right now. But let's remember who makes this decision. Yes, we have this U.S. attorney from Illinois who's doing the investigation. On one hand, special counsel doing the other investigation. But ultimately, Merrick Garland makes both of these decisions. Now, is Merrick Garland the famously cautious, the famously allergic to politics, Merrick Garland going to end up in a situation where he gives the current president, his current boss, a pass, but he indicts not just the former president, but the guy running against his own boss right now. I don't know Merrick Garland personally, but based on what I do know, that is really difficult for me to see. All right, Ellie, what you just heard was the sound of a lot of people, largely Democrats, throwing things at their TV at you right now, saying, mm. Ellie Hoding, <laughs> he's playing whataboutism now. What Donald right. Trump did, even the limited amounts we know of both cases, is just very, very different. He was subpoenaed several times. He didn't turn it over. He obstructed. He did this. He did that, yeah. allegedly. How can you say that that this is now the case that Merrick Garland would treat them similarly. Yeah, um, it's not what aboutism, it's real worldism. Merrick Garland, look, the platonic ideal of the prosecutor, which in many ways Merrick Garland is, would not take into account anything other than the documents on his desk, the hard legal analysis. But that's not reality. We live in reality. And you have to think about, and Merrick Garland certainly thinks about, how is this going to look? How is this going to be received? How is this going to impact the way people regard the Justice Department? I guarantee you he's thinking about it. He's also got things. a beyond a reasonable doubt issue yes, he does. in an actual courtroom if he does press charges. Essie Cup, the political side of mm. this. <laughs> Republicans, some mm -hmm. are saying, okay, you know, this is now a thing. We're going to look into this. But don't they then, those same Republicans, have an issue if they were silent about Donald Trump? Or won't they also then have to say, if Biden does it and it's bad, it was bad when Trump did it too? What you're talking about is something called hypocrisy. And it's not something that this, you know, Republican um, majority now has been all that interested in or bothered by. And if I know this Republican majority, and I think I do, um, I have no doubt they're going to make a lot of this. And let me be, let me be real fair here. This might be very bad. Classified documents should be handled very, very carefully. I don't care if you have an R next to your name or a D next to your name. This could be bad. It could also just be a mistake that happens. Um, it could be someone did something stupid. We don't know yet, and we need to know more. Um, but one thing we do know is the ways in which these two gentlemen handled 
these classified documents in the wake of revelations that they were not where they needed to be. Um, And if the classified documents system is basically an honor system, we trust that you'll keep them where they need to be and not take them, you know, to your home or your office. Um, One man has acted honorably and one man has not acted honorably. One man has said, look, I found these things that you didn't even know I had, and I want you to now do what's right with them. And another man made people run around in circles looking for them and insisted he didn't have them. I mean, those are the facts that we have right now, and we need to know more. But we should we should take a skeptical eye, um, just as skeptical an eye, to this as we did to the documents that Trump took. Right. And Allegedly. Well, I think, look, politically, Biden's about to come back to a very different Washington than he left before he went to Mexico. I mean, the reality is, is that for the first time in his presidency, he's now facing the, op- the opposing party uh, in a leadership role in the House. And part of their obligation is investigations. And they are clearly going to take that very seriously. We had over the weekend members of the Republican caucus say that they were already planning to impeach Biden on what grounds we don't know, but that it was clearly high on their list. And this is absolutely red meat uh, for the base. They will spend the next two years screaming about this in the same way that Hillary's emails, despite various other points of hypocrisy and other people in the Trump administration who handle the emails in similar manner. It doesn't matter because it plays to the base. It plays to this whataboutism, which is part of what has made the, politi- the politics of this Republican conference work. But they do this but again and again. Been good so far. You've got folks like Jim Himes, Democrats, who have said... Yeah, we should look at this. Yeah, Not absolutely. doing what Republicans did, which yeah. was, there's nothing to see here. Trump is perfect, right. and this is all political. And That's the, right. The Republican tactic, I think we actually saw an interesting example of this earlier tonight. We had a Republican congressman on air with Aaron Burnett, our colleague, and he said, yes, there do appear to be differences in the facts here. But then he said, but what's good for the goose is good for the gander. I think it's a very human response, right? <laughs> um, Lord... <laughs> One of the reasons we wanted you to come in was aside from this, if you want it to be aside from this, if you think it's somehow connected, let me know. CNN has got reported that Joe Biden is is perhaps moving ever closer to announcing that he is going to run for reelection. Now, normally for an incumbent president, this would be like a non-news story. But Joe Biden, it is it is more of an issue because just of his age and because he has answered questions about running against somewhat differently than other presidents in the past. Do you what do you make of the win that he may think he has at his back after the midterms and where he is right now. Yeah, I mean, he does think he has wind at his back, and he has good reasons to believe that. I mean, he had a pretty extraordinary last two years legislatively, more accomplishments than I think anyone would have expected in such a closely divided, you know, in such, with such a narrow margin in the Senate particularly. So, look, he's, and very few incumbent presidents don't see themselves as running for a second term. I mean, the last time we had an incumbent president not run again was Lyndon Johnson. And he made the calculation that his, you know, commitments to progress for the country were more important than his politics. Totally different time. I don't think there's any world in which Joe Biden doesn't run again. And even this, even in the context of this kind of noise, which is how he's going to see it, he's mostly been Teflon guy for the last two years. Everything that Republicans have tried to throw against him have not stuck. And we saw the evidence of that in the midterms. Democrats came very close. My calculation, it's about 6,750 votes from having held on to the majority. Republicans won 3 million more votes in the midterms overall, but just 6,000 more seats, 6,000 more votes would have actually gotten them five more seats. Some of those races were that close. So I think he looks at the map. He looks at some of the states like Michigan, et cetera, that have uh, gone even more blue than they were when he ran in 20, and he'd be crazy not to run. He does have an obligation, though, to the next generation, and I think that's 
one of the lessons of Pelosi stepping down when she did, right? There's a big bench. Democrats want to see a new generation. So if he's doing it again, he's going to have to make big investments into the next generation in his party. Interesting to see how he chooses to do that. Thank you all very much. The Atlanta area special grand jury investigating whether former President Trump and his allies violated the law in their efforts to overturn the 2020 election has completed its work. So what legal risks could there be now for the former president and his inner circle? Will former President Trump face criminal charges for trying to overturn the 2020 special uh, 2020 election? Will he do so in Georgia? The special grand jury in Georgia is done. A judge has the final report detailing an almost 11 month investigation that began after this call became public. So, look, all I want to do is this. I just want to find uh, 11,780 votes, which is one more than we have, because we won the state. Now, the Georgia grand jury heard from dozens of witnesses. That includes some key players who never appeared before the House Select Committee investigating January 6. Folks, including Trump's former chief of staff, Mark Meadows, and sitting lawmakers, including Senator Lindsey Graham and former Congressman Jody Heiss, they may have pled the fifth. We won't know until unless the judge decides, unless or until the judge decides to release the grand jury's report. A hearing for that isn't for another two weeks. With me now, CNN political commentator S.E. Cup, back for more. Mm-hmm. Former uh, state and federal prosecutor Ellie Honig, back for more. And New York Times national political reporter Ested Herndon, back for more. Ellie, legally, what's happening in Georgia? So this is a two-step process, and we're now done with stage one, which is this special grand jury, which has been hearing this case, investigating this case since May. Now there's this report. And the first question is, will we see this report? The judge is going to have this hearing on it. I'm sure that media organizations will say, yes, you should release it to the public. It'll be really interesting to see what the DA takes as a position. If she's a serious prosecutor, and I believe she is, she has to fight against releasing this. It's an ongoing investigation. Why tip your playbook to the other team? And you have to be respectful of the rights of the accused and people being investigated. Either way, it will then be Fonnie Willis's decision, do I want to now pursue an actual indictment, in which case she will go in front of a regular grand jury. And if she wants to get an indictment, I'm quite sure she will, because virtually any prosecutor can indict virtually anybody on virtually anything. You broke Georgia law. Georgia law is what she will say. Yes, yes. She can only indict for violations of Georgia state law. Correct. All right. Estead Herndon, if she does say you, former President Donald Trump, broke Georgia state law, I'm pressing charges Describe to me the scene we will be living through. <laughs> oh, my. It's hard to fathom. I mean, I was actually thinking about this today. I, in 2023, what could feel like a kind of static political year, we don't have elections. What is the earth-shattering event in politics that could happen this year? This, this question about the Donald Trump indictment. The, I don't think we can say the traditional scandal rules would apply. We have seen a base stick with him through every twist and turn, even as it's through electoral losses recently. But... It it would feel as if the Republican Party is in this moment where they're looking for any type of excuse, a lot of members, to to cast Trump at least a foot away. You would would think 
that if this were to come down, it would be that kind of final straw that a lot of folks need. The problem is for the voters, they may not think the same way. Was that a chortle? Yeah, because, because and you're so right, in, real, in the real world, in the, real in the normal world. world. But you have to think with everything Trump that it's the upside down. And so I actually think if he did get indicted, that's a big if, by the way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, I actually think that might jumpstart what has been a lackluster start to a presidential campaign. It's um, a hell of a you know, kickoff. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I, in normal world, it would be perilous, you know. But in, in the upside down, um, his voters see him as a victim. This is proof of the deep state that he promised and all of the factors that are rigged against him and actually might um, infuse his campaign with some energy. I agree agree with Essie, by the way. If you think back to August 8th of last year, the day that Mar-a-Lago was searched, that was the best day Trump had politically. I was with you all last year. I was was with you all last year to the indictment with help him politically. Certainly he fundraised a lot off of Mar-a-Lago. After the midterms, there has been a, a both quantifiable and qualified kind of not not move away from Donald Trump, but the feeling that he's just not moving the party forward. And so I don't think this will be some, I don't think we're ever going to see a Republican party that, that cast him, that talks about him in the language that Democrats talk about him. But would an indictment create an opening for other Republicans at a minimum? I, I, I do think it would loosen some There's stuff. There's a big difference to all of these questions than two years ago was Ron DeSantis. The, the Ron, we now exist in a world where Republicans do where Ron DeSantis is there mm-hmm. and there is an option for some of these people if they want to choose something other than Donald Trump. I've asked this question a lot tonight, Ellie. Okay. Uh, what does Merrick Garland think of all this? Well, that's interesting. If I'm Merrick Garland, I'm begging, praying that the DA indicts Donald Trump. You know why? It's a pressure release mm-hmm. valve, mm-hmm. right? All the people who were on Merrick Garland, where are you? Where's Merrick Garland? He's sleeping. He's taking too long. All of a sudden, a lot of that political pressure gets diverted. Oh, okay. He's at least been charged. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, for all the time I've said to you, he is above the law. Show me where Trump has been held accountable for one thing ever. Um, this, you know, that is what Merrick Garland probably hears every single day from folks like us and probably also folks inside um, his own orbit. So this would be some, as, as you say, Ellie, a, a pressure relief. Yeah. And, and instead, you made a really good point right in the beginning, which is if there is an indictment, huge if, the reactions are going to be through the roof both ways. You are going to see unfettered joy yeah. from people who believe yeah. Donald Trump has evaded the law for too long. And you're going to see fury. You're going to see real yeah. anger from the other side. But it's so important to keep in mind, I've said this a thousand times, I'll say it again, an indictment is the start of a case. It's not the end. Tables can turn. And to your point, there will be fury if there is not an indictment, yeah. too. I mean, this yeah. is a situation in which either way this goes, it is both unfathomable to see it kind of play out to that end, and we've gotten this far for Mayor Garland to not go through, I think, would also incur big reaction. Hey, look, it's that time's 20 for Merrick Garland in terms of the federal cases. I, I do want to ask, I, we keep bringing up Ron DeSantis here. At what point does a DeSantis <laughs> do something more than just stay silent on mm-hmm. a subject like this? At what point does he decide to put a little body English into it and say, you know, hey, by the way, there's a lot of investigations into this guy? Yeah, the day he decides I'm going to run for president is the day he should probably decide to to take off the, the governor, um, no pun intended, that, that has been silencing him. You, got, you saw it. I saw that. <laughs> saw it took me a second, but I got it. Somebody did there. Um, you know, I think he's been keeping his powder dry and waiting to see if Trump really goes down, remains kind of relevant. A new poll out from CBS says 60-something percent of Republicans still believe we should we as a party should be loyal to Trump. Um, I think he's reading all of that and wondering, okay, 
if if it's my time to take this man on, then and only then will it make any sense for me to criticize him because I will need his voters. S.E. Cup, Estet Hearn, and Ellie Honey, great to see you all tonight. Thanks so much. So, seems like we're now all intimately aware of Prince Harry's feelings about the royal family due to his extensive media blitz ahead of his book being published. I don't think it's out yet. It's still not out yet, yet we know everything that's in it. Is there a chance that he will regret being so open? Up next, some thoughts from Patty Davis, daughter of former President Ronald Reagan. So, did you know that Prince Harry has a new book coming out? Bet you did. He's been talking a lot about it, including with Anderson Cooper on 60 Minutes, saying that Camilla Parker Bowles leaked stories in a campaign to be queen. With her on the way to being queen consort, there was going to be people or bodies left in the street because of that. The prince speaking to multiple outlets on both sides of the Atlantic. He says he still has love for the royal family. But... What people don't know is the efforts that I've gone to to resolve this privately, both with my brother and with my father. He says he's tried to make things right with them. I love my father. I love my brother. I love my family. Now, Harry and Meghan may be the only people in this country who know what it's like to have your family drama come with the baggage of being royal, But my next guest has some idea. Patty Davis was in her 20s when her father, Ronald Reagan, was first elected president. In a new op-ed in the New York Times, she says she regrets the tell-all she wrote about her family. The book She Is Happy, she wrote, is her new one, Floating in the Deep End. And Patty Davis (laughs) joins me now. I'm so happy to see you. The op-ed that you wrote over the weekend, it, it really made me stop and think, honestly. And the gist of it is... If you had a chance to speak to Harry, you would tell him you're going to regret this book. Why? Well, to, to be clear, I don't know that he would listen to me or to anybody else. You know, at the time that I wrote my autobiography, which we're not even going to say the title of because I've written many books since, um, but at that time, I, I think anything short of Jesus himself coming back and saying to me, don't do this, <laughs> or Buddha or God, some other enlightened master, I wouldn't have listened to somebody, you know, because it's like you're, you're on this emotional river, right? That's your experience and your, as he calls it, his truth. Um, and you you can't see anything else you can't you dare, you're not really thinking logically um because i think to for most people listening to what harry says about you know i love my parents my family i want a reconciliation but you have put this book out where i'm calling my father's wife a villain and making accusations and everything most people are going to go there's no logic here because when you're in that emotional rush of just your own situation and your own experience and your own kind of victimization really you're not thinking logically you're not taking a step back and looking at the whole picture that takes some distance that takes some reflection that takes some silence hence the title of my of my op-ed so i don't think he would even if i had met him and 
tried to say something, I don't think he would have listened. Let me put it this way, though. What if he's right? What if everything he says is right and true in this book? It, I would still say the same thing because it's only a narrow part of the story. You know, that, like I said in my op-ed, that the truth is bigger than just your own truth. You know, there's a bigger story there. I think he had, he would have had a really interesting story to tell if he had talked to his father, talked to, to William, and, and I don't know if they would have talked to him, but I'm sorry, someone else is joining our <laughs> interview here. She just does that. Sorry about that. Um, you know, there's a bigger story here of the history of the monarchy and, and you know, why, why is Charles the, the father that he was, who couldn't embrace his son after Diana died, um, how was he parented by his father, by Philip, right? There's, a, there's always a larger story, but again, you have to take a step back. It doesn't really matter if you're right in what you're saying. There's more to say than just your own perspective, Right. But that takes it. Like I said, it takes some it takes some stepping back. It takes some distance. You know, it's kind of like you don't go into a museum or an art gallery and stand six inches from a painting to experience it. You stand back from it. Well, the same is true about life. So he's writing about a family. It's his family. But it's not just any family in this case. It's the royal family. These people are going to be, you know, William's going to be sovereign. His father is now king. He's a head right. of state. So does Harry, as a British citizen, have an obligation? Could he argue? Could he argue? I have an obligation to reveal these people to the world because they're in these positions of power. Well, I, who asked him to do that? I mean, where do you take on that obligation? That's, that's sort of like, you know, I, I have this reaction whenever I hear people say, I want to set the record straight. I have this sort of knee-jerk reaction to that, which is, who asked you to? <laughs> right? There, there's something kind of aggressive about that. There's like, you're wrong, I'm right, and I'm going to set things straight. Who asked you to? You know? How about looking at the whole picture? And I'm, there's a lot of really significant things that, that he can say, but um, I think that it has to... It, it, would have been better if it had, if he had taken some time and looked at it from a broader perspective. Frankly, it would have been a more interesting story. Hmm. Like I said, I, I'm very, I'd be very interested in how did William process all of this? How did Charles process all of this? Generationally, he was raised the same way, but that was a different generation. The monarchy seems to me, is going to have to update itself a little bit, you know, and not maybe be so stiff upper lip and we don't talk about things. But Charles would have a perspective on that, I think. I, I, your op-ed begins with you describing how, I guess in a way it's fair to say, you apologized to your father for I did. the book. Um, do you think that Harry owes his father and his brother an apology? I, I would suggest that would be a good idea. <laughs> yeah, because, you know, it's, again, we get back to the logic or lack of, uh, you know. I mean, he's saying, I tried my best privately to whatever, you know, bridge these mm -hmm. 
differences or these gaps or, or, or whatever. And it didn't work out the way I wanted. So I decided to just tell the world everything that it doesn't really track. But if you're in a completely emotional state and only looking at your own experience and your own story, it makes sense to you, right? It made sense mm -hmm. to me to just tell everything to the, to the world. Patty Davis. And it, then it took some distance to, to realize that didn't make a lot of sense. It's great speaking with you uh, and your cat. Uh, and as I said, um, the, the op-ed really did. It really did make me think. It's not often that I read something like that over the weekend, and I just stop and sit for a minute uh, and, and process it. So I, I appreciate the work that you've done. It's really terrific talking to you. Thank you. Thank you so much. So could the parents of a six-year-old boy who allegedly brought a gun to school and shot his teacher, could the parents face charges themselves? The latest on this case, just ahead. Police in Newport News, Virginia, now say the gun a six-year-old boy allegedly used to shoot his teacher in school last week was legally purchased by the child's mother. We determined that the firearm was in the residence where they lived, and the child had obtained that firearm, placed it in his backpack, and brought it to school. Police say they are still investigating whether the parents of the six-year-old will be charged with something. The child is under a temporary detention order. The teacher was shot in the chest through her hand. She is listed in stable condition. With me now is John Miller, CNN's chief law enforcement and intelligence analyst, and back with us, CNN senior legal analyst, Ellie Honing. Uh, John Miller, there's a six-year-old who shot someone, appears to have shot someone here. This is a complicated, tragic case. So for police, it's really not a classic criminal matter that you would have if anybody else had shot somebody. When you have a six-year-old, this isn't somebody you can bring to trial. It's not somebody who can assist in their own defense or understand the process. So in the in the Virginia system, you've got a juvenile delinquent who commits a crime. You've got a child in need of supervision who can't be handled by their parents. You have a child in need of services. This is one of those things where police and the social services agencies are going to have to get into the home, assess the family, figure out questions like, um, was there a degree of negligence that a gun was somewhere where a child had access to it? That also can be complicated. There's no law in Virginia regulating the storage of firearms um, in the home, even with children. So we know from prior studies that have been done that you think you have a hiding place that nobody knows about. And if there's a kid in the house, they will find it. So legally speaking, what charges could the parents face, Ellie? Obviously, this is the ultimate nightmare scenario for all involved. The, the child will not be charged for the reasons John said. With respect to the parents, some states, New York and New Jersey being two examples, have specific laws about the way you must store a gun. Must be locked up, sometimes must be unloaded, that kind of thing. Virginia does not have those laws. However, Virginia, like virtually every state, does have your more general child endangerment laws. Um, I was involved in, very tangentially, in a case in New Jersey, a horrible case, where a four-year-old found his father's loaded rifle under a bed and, and accidentally shot and killed a six-year-old. That father was prosecuted under a very similar child endangerment law, pled guilty, and, and was sentenced to three years. So it will all depend on the specifics of how the gun was stored. 
definitionally, if a six-year-old can get a hold of a gun and carry it out of a house, wasn't that stored incorrectly? You would think so. I mean, six-year-old, yes. I mean, right? If it was locked up safe and secure, I think definitionally a six-year-old would not be able to. Right. But I mean, what we're dividing here is a question of moral and responsibility uh, versus legal culpability. But I think Ellie's right. We've had these cases in New York City where 99% of the guns that you'll find in a residential home in New York City are going to be illegal weapons. Um, There are very few licensed firearms in a city of 8.6 million here. Um, In Virginia, it's the opposite. Mm -hmm. It's it's almost impossible to have an illegal gun unless it's possessed by a convicted felon or some other prohibited class. But uh, I think the direction they're going to go is socially what services are needed for the family, for the child, um, and then legally... Where is the line between that um, endangering the welfare of a minor by having a weapon that has been seen and is accessible by the child? Where is that line? And that's going to be a hard one in a place like Virginia. What happens to this six-year-old? He's, he's going to... I mean, the police department said he's in custody, which means they've mm-hmm. taken him away from the family and they've put him with social services for the time being. It's all going to depend on what is that assessment that both the police and the social services agency do at the home to see what are the conditions there, uh, what is the parenting. I mean, they'll assess this kid's entire world before they decide a direction to take. And one aspect of this case is that the reporting is that it was an intentional act. That's yeah. rare in these cases. That's the language here is very different than something I've heard before. Yeah, I mean, the, the police sort of said this was not an accident. And most of these cases, they're all horrible, but mm. usually it's an accident an accidental discharge or they were playing with the gun. But but this sounds like, I mean, the reporting, what the police said was there was some sort of disagreement or something between the student and the teacher. So that makes this one different to me. But I mean, that's a whole other question about the world we mm-hmm. live in, which is if you're six years old and, you know, what you're seeing in the computer games are point of view, active shooter games, Call mm-hmm. of Duty, you name it. Um, what you're seeing on the TV is the hero comes out with the pistol and shoots everybody, and that's how problems are solved in the entertainment world. Um, that's a very impressionable mind, and when the object of that is right there in the home, uh, you can see where the line between mm-hmm. what's fantasy, what's reality, and what are real consequences are going to be blurred in the mind of a six-year-old. John Miller, Ellie Honig, thanks so much. Up next, a powerful storm bringing torrential rain and flooding to central California. We're going to check in with the Weather Center to see where the storm is headed next. Powerful storms unleashing torrential rains and flooding across central California. Many roadways underwater there. A swollen creek in Santa Cruz, south of San Jose, washed out a local bridge there. We've got more dramatic pictures. These are from Montecito. This is where Ellen DeGeneres posted this video to Twitter. Probably shouldn't be standing that close. Rescue workers pulled people to safety from the rising waters up and down the California coast. Derek Van Dam joins us now from the CNN Weather Center. Derek, what's ahead here? 
Yeah, look, John, it's either feast or famine for California, right? On one hand, it's drought and fire, and then at a flip of a switch, we've got floods and landslides. And unfortunately, that's the threat that we're encountering tonight and into the day on Tuesday as well. Threats very active and ongoing right now from north to south. Just some of the things that we've seen in Ventura and Santa Barbara counties. We've seen the swift water rescues. We've seen cars completely submerged. There is a ground stop for some of the flights coming out of LAX. There's been mudslides, landslides. Even the mandatory evacuations from Montecito in Santa Barbara. So here's a look at the radar. You can see just how uh, extensive this storm system is. But let's focus right into Los Angeles, which, by the way, has a flash flood warming, warning until 12 a.m. local time for the county of Los Angeles, including downtown. Some of the radar estimates just outside of Los Angeles into Ventura and the mountainous regions, we've been able to produce over 10 inches of rain. So an incredible amount of moisture with this initial round of atmospheric moisture moisture that's uh, just spread in more rain, but there is a backside. So we're going to actually start to wane that rainfall overnight. And then we start to focus our attention on this next storm system that's going to bring another oscillating round of strong rain and uh, heavy precipitation from north to south once again overnight and into the day on Tuesday. We can't even rule out the possibility of water spouts and tornadoes with some of these thunderstorms that will move on shore with this next round of storms. There's the high wind warnings and feet measured, or snow measured in feet. Can't forget about that for the uh, mountain overpasses as well. John? Yeah, not used to seeing pictures like this from these locations. Derek Van Dam, thank you so much. And thanks to you all for watching. Our coverage continues. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max. A new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking. Call Me Country. Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.